Good morning. Let me try that again. Good morning. Good morning. Amen. Y'all are awake. Praise the Lord. Uh, it is a pleasure to be with you this morning. For those of you who are guests, welcome to First Baptist Church of Thibodeau. We're always excited to have guests with us and members know this. We love you. We care for you. Let us know how we can continue to pray for you, right? We're um, starting off our second week in praying and fasting. So I pray that you're a part of this as you met up in different groups, with different groups, praying and seeking the Lord for your personal uh, spiritual growth. And this week we'll be focusing on our families, right? Our families. So um, in the prayer guide, we do have some content for you to pray for. You know, if you're thinking about ways to pray for your spouse, um, the simplest way to do it, uh, and maybe some of you are afraid of your spouse, so you might not want to talk to them. Um, but the simplest way to do it is just go and ask them, like, um, what can I pray for, right? Um, so, so that's one way to do it. Uh, another way is that we have several ladies uh, and, and brothers from the church who have listed several things for us to pray for concerning them as husbands and wives, and, and, and also to pray for your children, pray for your children. So please utilize this time. God is doing an amazing thing already in our church life, in our personal life, by us seeking him, crying out to him. So be a part of what God is doing here as we're praying and fasting and seeking God's face. With that said, I'm excited to be back in the book of First Samuel, the book of First Samuel. The title of today's sermon is The Lord Looks at the Heart, but the Lord looks at or sees the heart. When you think about it, there are really two approaches to life, right? Two approaches to life. The outside approach, which is found in what you can see, what you can touch, and what you can taste. It's very tangible. That is an approach. And with that very approach, there are three places that it leads us to. Three places. And I want you to pay close attention to those three places. Place number one is an excessive occupation with appearances. So, so when we have the outward approach that we're pursuing in our life, this is a path that we're pursuing, we will find ourselves with this occupation, excessive occupation with appearances. And we see this even in our nation in 2019 alone. 15 million cosmetic surgeries were done in 2019. Right? This is just 2019. I was trying to find for 2023. I couldn't find, but I would, I would think it's more than 15 million. People are completely obsessed with their parents, constantly wanting to have all different kinds of surgery, constantly. And then we find not just the obsession with appearance, but the obsession with appearance leads to the third, second place, which is the obsession with possessions. Possessions. Even in America today, three out of five Americans are in credit card debt. That's 61% of our nation is in credit card debt. It tells us something. But then not, not just this obsession with appearances, the obsession for uh, possessions, but there's also the obsession with pleasure, instant 
gratification, right? I mean, this is why Burger King is so good, have it your way, right? You can have it when you want, how you want, right? This is the nation that we're living in. So if you are pursuing this approach of life that is outward, right, what you can see, what you can touch, what you can smell, this is what you're going to find yourself in. You're going to find yourself obsessed with appearances, obsessed with possessions, obsessed with pleasure. But on the other hand, there is the other approach to life. It is not outward, but it's inward. And the Bible talks a lot about this inward approach to life. It deals with your heart. It deals with you desiring God and pleasing God. And this is exactly what we see in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. It shows us the struggle between the outside approach to life as opposed to the inside approach to life. Saul's life represents the outside approach, right? Like everything about Saul represents this outside approach. They picked Saul to be the king because of his appearance. We, we notice that Saul is, is obsessed or was obsessed with possession and pleasure, right? But then we look at David's life. David's life is a picture of the inward approach. Now, I don't want you to mistake or misunderstand what I'm saying here and what the Bible is saying. The inner approach to life doesn't mean you have to be perfect. As a matter of fact, when we place Saul's life next to David's life, we see a lot of mistakes in David's life as well, right? I mean, we, we, we're going to see this. The more we read about David and we see how David sinned against God and sinned against his family and sins against the nation of Israel. And we might even say David sinned more than Saul. So how in the world does David life, David's life represents the inner approach to life? And let me share with you. It's because of the grace of God. It's because when David fell, David got up and sought the forgiveness of God. That's what makes us different. What makes us different, a Christian to a lost person, is the imputed righteousness upon Jesus Christ. And that when we sin, we can get up and trust in the glory of God. It's not because we are more righteous than other people. It's because of the righteousness of Christ has been given to us. And God forgives us when we sin. Paul David Tripp, this is what he mentioned he says, if you want to see yourself with accuracy, read the Bible. He's absolutely right. And this is exactly what we're seeing in the life of David and Saul. But it's been a while since we've been in the book of 1 Samuel. So I know this. Perhaps you've forgotten the sermon last week and the sermon before then. So this is why we constantly have to give new sermons, right? So I'm thinking you cannot remember much in 1 Samuel. So join me as I walk us through the book, the first 15 chapters of the book of 1 Samuel, just to give us context. So 1 Samuel, this is important for you to understand, is chronologically immediately after the book of Judges. So in Judges chapter 21, 
verse 21, the last verse in the book of Judges. It says, in those days, there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So what the author is telling you is simply that people were sinning. There was this decline of spirituality in those days. So when we start the book of 1 Samuel, it's happening around that same time as Judges chapter 21, verse 21. And then we are introduced to this woman in chapter 1 of the book of 1 Samuel by the name of Hannah. Oh my goodness. Reading through 1 Samuel, I'm like, this is one of my heroes in scripture, Hannah. But it begins by showing us that Hannah was the wife, the first wife of Elkanah, a Jewish man who had another wife named Panina. And Panina was provoking Hannah by saying to her, Hannah, you have no children and I have children for Elkanah. It was so bad that we notice in the first chapter that Hannah went up to the house of the Lord praying and seeking the Lord in her despair. But it was in Hannah's despair that God gave Hannah a great vision as to what will happen with the nation as Israel. She prayed and prayed for a son. And towards the end of her prayer, she was like, give me a son so I'll give him back to you. Hannah saw her despair, but she also saw the spiritual decline of Israel. And she says to God, give me a son so he will change this spiritual situation. Well, God grants Hannah this great request by giving her a son. And in chapter 2, Hannah sings to the Lord. I mean, one of the most theological and amazing prayer. And she's praising God for his faithfulness. And in chapter 2, we see the contrast between Hannah's son, Samuel, and the sons of Eli. The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. And it shows you that this son, even as a young boy, that God's hand is upon him. Toward the end of chapter 2, God then pronounced judgment on the house of Eli. Your house will be cut off. In chapter 3, we see a great contrast between Eli and Samuel. They're in the temple. God speaks and Eli says to Samuel, it must be the Lord. So God speaks to Samuel. Towards the end of the book of chapter 3, it mentions specifically, I don't know if you remember this, but you can always go back and read it. It says the word of the Lord was rare in those days. But then it ends chapter 3 by saying God spoke to Samuel. In chapter 4, we notice that the sons of Eli are killed. They are dead, right? Word, the Ark of the Covenant has been captured. And then we notice that Samuel, uh, Eli, after hearing about this, fell and died. We notice it was the daughter-in-law of Eli, after hearing about her husband dying, gave birth to a child and name him Ichabod, which means the glory of God has departed. So now the Ark of the Covenant of God, which represented the presence of God, is among the enemies of God who were the Philistines. And the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant, and instead of them destroying the Ark of the Covenant, I don't know if you remembered, they brought the Ark of the Covenant in the house of Dagon, who is their ultimate deity. 
But God is a jealous God. He's a powerful God. And what God did was destroy Dagon. The people got so afraid, they removed the Ark of the Covenant and sent it to another city of the Philistines. And what happened? Plague came upon the people. So they got rid of the Ark of the Covenant, brought it back to the people of God, and the people of God did not even know how to dwell with the Ark of the Covenant. God struck them dead, and the Ark of the Covenant spent 20 years with a Gentile who knew how to dwell with the Ark of the Covenant through faith. And then, here we have it. Samuel is mentioned. Samuel is no longer a young boy. Samuel is older now. And in chapter 8, we notice what Samuel does. He calls the people to repent. In chapter 7, he calls them to repent. Notice what he mentions here. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord, all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. And great repentance happened in the life of the people. They went and destroyed the enemies of God and Samuel erected a stone, a monument, and he called it Ebenezer, which means my God help. My God is helping. My God is fighting on my behalf. Then we find in chapter 9, chapter 8, they, they're asking Samuel, right? So after great repentance, and in chapter 8, right after chapter 7, we're thinking, man, that's just a couple of days. But no, the text tells us Samuel was older. Many, many scholars believe Samuel, it was probably 40 years had passed after this great revival and great repentance. Now Samuel is older, and the people are asking Samuel for a king. Give us a king. Samuel warned the people, if you ask for a king, this king will abuse you. He will take from you. He will hurt you. God should be your king. And the people said, we don't care about the consequences. Give us a king. So God gave the people exactly what they wanted. And in chapter 9, we see God in his sovereignty, how he picked Saul for the people. He picked a leader that the people would ask for. That the people would pick themselves. And he picked Saul. In chapter 10, Saul is anointed. In chapter 11, Saul fights against the Ammonites, the enemies of God. Looks as if Saul is a good pick. But the more we read about Saul, the more we see a lot of character issues. In chapter 12, Samuel is bidding farewell to the people. Tells them bye. He's old. He tells them he will always pray for them. He asks them never to forsake God and to obey God. In chapter 13, they fought against the Philistines. And then we begin to see the problem with Saul, right? What did Saul do? God asked him, Samuel asked him to wait at Gilgal. But he took it upon himself to sacrifice an animal instead of waiting on Samuel to do it. Such a simple order. But in that disobedience, we get a picture of who Saul is. And God says to Saul, God says to Samuel, God says to the nation of Israel, I have rejected Saul. I have rejected Saul. Chapter 14, 
right? We're introduced to Saul's son. What another great character. Man, I absolutely fell in love with Jonathan, right? There's this one guy, and he's seeing all what his father is doing, but yet Jonathan had great faith, wanted to honor God. Even when his father told him not to do something, he wanted to honor God. So he took his armor bearer, and he went fight against the Philistines too, against maybe a hundred, maybe 50. We don't know exactly the amount, but Jonathan trusted God and he went in faith, by faith. In chapter 15, again, we notice that God rejects Saul again. And towards the end of chapter 15, we are given a picture of Samuel grieving tremendously because God has rejected Saul. And we're all caught up now. Samuel is extremely sad. And here we have it. What will God do for this prophet? So this is by far one of the most powerful phrases in Scripture. But the Lord sees the heart. But in the context of the Lord seeing the heart, is God leading his prophet Samuel, through grief and fear. This is the beauty of Scripture. We see how God interacts with his people. These doctrines are not just given to us to just place on a shelf and to think highly of them, but they are meant to be used practically. So, so what is God doing with his grieving prophet? And friends, this morning, I, I want us to see three points here. Saul's experiences is the first point, verses 1 through 5. Two, Saul's command, which is verses 6 through 12. And finally, Saul's king. We see this in verse 13. Join me as I pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of Scripture. And God, speak to our hearts. You are a, an amazing God who speaks to your people, who interacts with your people. And God, thank you that even this old prophet, in the midst of his grief and fear, that you were able to lead him and guide him. So lead us and guide us in our grief, in our fears, God. Teach us and show us, God, it's not about the appearance, outward appearance, but it's about the heart. And you are the only one who knows the heart. So teach us what we do not know. Make us what we're not and give us what we do not have. And God's people said, amen, amen. The first point here is Saul's, or Samuel, sorry, experiences. There are two experiences here that is noticeable in the life of Samuel that we can identify in our own life as well. The first is, Samuel's first experience was grief. You see it. So in chapter 15, at the end of chapter 15, he is grieving because of Saul. And then in chapter 16, he is still grieving. So much so that the Lord says to Saul, Samuel, what are you doing? How long will you grieve over Saul? 
And friends, I need you to observe this with me and see this very carefully. Grief is a natural process that we must go through. The problem is we're not called to be held by grief. We're not called to be held by grief. And this is exactly what happened in the life of Samuel. Samuel absolutely loved Saul. You have to understand this. Here's Samuel who devoted his entire life to seeing Israel get better spiritually. And towards the end of his life, he's noticing that God has rejected, right? He just gave us his, he gave the people his farewell, right? I'm leaving, guys. I'm about to die in chapter 12. And now in chapter 15, God's like, I'm done with Saul. He's, he's done. And here we have it that Samuel is thinking, God, I, 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 could, I could die knowing that Israel has a king. Knowing that Israel is good spiritually. But for Samuel, perhaps, he's thinking Israel is worse than when he first started. Israel's spiritual life is, is worse than when he first started. So there is a sense of grieving over Saul, but not just Saul, but grieving because of the glory of God. And maybe some of you in this room, maybe you're held by grief. Maybe parents, you are held by grief because you've raised your children and you are saying, I regret I didn't do this. And you're beating yourself over and over and over because you're saying, I, I wish I could have done something different with my son or my daughter. Maybe you're held by grief because of decisions that you've made in your life. Maybe you're held by grief because of a broken friendship. Maybe you're held by grief because of relationship issues. You, you get the picture. Maybe someone died that you love so much and you just cannot. You're held by grief. that You cannot even live life anymore because of that person you love so much that is gone. Friends, we're called to go through grief but not be held by grief. And this was the issue here with Samuel. It was the issue with Samuel. But notice with me the second experience here. The second experience was fear. He feared. What did the Lord ask of Samuel to do? The Lord said, Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among the, his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. This is fear. Now we can identify with Samuel here. He, he knows how compulsive Saul was, right? How schizophrenic Saul was. He knew how angry Saul was. So, so if I go and I tell Saul, that God is calling me to get another king. Will not Saul kill me, God, is what he's saying? Will you do it? You, you would probably have the same fear as Samuel. But friends, here's the problem with fear. It pushes out all that we know that is true about God. It really does. This is a man who's a lot older at this point, who've been walking with God. 
God, and he should have known better. God will protect you, Samuel. Fear is a powerful thing, isn't it? It really is. It can make a strong person physically look weak and small. Think of this cowardly lion in The Wizard of Oz. It's quite entertaining watching him, you know? He's supposed to be so strong, but yet he is afraid of everything. Paul David Tripp, this is how he defines fear, or he explains and describes fear. Fear can overwhelm your senses. It can distort your thinking. It can kidnap your desires. It can capture your meditation so that you spend more time worrying about what could be than considering the God who is. Fear can cause you to make bad decisions in the short term and fail to make good decisions in the long run. Fear can cause you to forget what you know and to lose sight of who you are. Fear can make you wish for control you will never have. It can cause you to distrust people you have reason to trust. It can cause you to be demanding rather than serving. It can cause you to run when you should stay and to stay when you really should run. Fear can make God look small and your circumstance loom large. This is the problem with fear. But friends, is your grief holding you? Are you held by your grief? And is your fear gripping tightly at you? What are you fearful of? Maybe you're fearful of men. Maybe you're fearful of rejection. If you share the gospel, people will, will reject you. Maybe you're fearful that God will not forgive you. What are you fearful of? Maybe you're fearful that God has called you to be a part of a ministry that you think is going to fail, or you're not good enough, or you're not equipped enough. But God is asking you to serve the local church or serve people, and you're saying, I'm not good enough. I'm not one of the elect, <laughs> one of the chosen to teach, one of the chosen to do this. Maybe that's you this morning. But friends, I am here to encourage you that when God calls us to do something, we should not allow fear to grip, grip us or grief to hold us. But notice with me the second point here. We notice Samuel's two experiences. But come in closer and see this for yourself. Samuel's command. Do you notice that God did not rebuke Samuel, but God is leading Samuel? The only rebuke that God gives Samuel is, why are you grieving for so long, Samuel? And when he says about how fearful he is, and the Lord says, well, Samuel, this is what you must do. Go to the house of Jesse. I have chosen my king here. But notice with me here how important this is. Samuel is grieving because he believes that he will die without seeing a king. He believes the glory of God has departed Does that remind you of anyone? It reminds me also of Simeon in the New Testament and Anna, the, the prophetess, who waited on the glory of the king to arrive. And here we have Samuel who has worked so hard and now he is about to die and he's not seeing that. 
And Simeon and Anna the prophetess, we notice that they were awaiting the greatest king, the king of kings and lord of lords. But here we notice that God will do something amazing. God will show Samuel the king that he will choose. Friends, I love this passage of scripture so much that it helps me see how God sees people. Samuel walks into the house. He tells Jesse what he's doing. He sees the first son and immediately, coming closer, don't miss this, he was impressed. What was he impressed by? By what he saw. By the outward appearance of Jesse's older son. Read for yourself and see what the Bible says here. This is amazing. This is amazing. In verse 6, and when he came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on his height or his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Samuel looked and saw what was physical. He was handsome. He was tall. He was probably built. As a matter of fact, the narrative doesn't tell us exactly all that Samuel saw. All we know is what the Lord told Samuel, his height, his stature. The Lord says, don't look on his height, his appearance. Why? Because there is a major issue with that. What we notice today in a lot of churches is that we make mistakes by getting people in leadership primarily because of their charisma, because of the way they talk, because of the way they look, because of the way they dress, right? And that's a major issue. That is a major, major issue because of the connections that they have. I know churches that put people in leadership mainly because they have money or because they're just popular. God doesn't look at the outward appearance. Rather, God looks at the heart. The reason why I believe Samuel looked at this firstborn son was for several reasons. Don't miss this. One was because he was the firstborn. In Jewish culture, the firstborn son is considered to get the blessings of God, right? But we notice in Scripture, God doesn't work that way. We even think about the tribe of Israel. Firstborn was Reuben. But who got the greater blessing? It was Judah. Then we notice Jacob and uh, Jacob's father, Isaac, and Ishmael. Ishmael was the firstborn son. But who got the blessing? It was Isaac. This is, this is how God works. And then we notice Jacob and Esau. Esau was the oldest. But who got the blessing? It was Jacob. Samuel should have known that. But he's allowing... His culture, what he sees, what he can taste, what he can touch. To make him determine what leader God wants. But it's a motif in scripture. God doesn't work around what we think a leader should be, friends. God has given us in scripture what a leader should be. So that's the first thing I notice here. Second, it was his outward appearance. The fact that he was tall, perhaps charismatic. 
One often mentioned, Kenneth, this is what he says concerning this. He says, like Samuel, we are too impressed by the things that can be seen with our physical eyes. Consequently, we will live in a world where physical beauty outranks spiritual depth, where success in business and in church tends to be defined in materialistic terms, and where charisma is prized above character. He's absolutely right. But we learn a very important lesson. God doesn't look at the outward appearance, how tall, how short. What does God look at? God looks at the heart. Friends, coming closer and get this. He looks at the heart, the inner man, the inner man. I love this. Coming closer and write this down if you can. The Bible is an examination and exposition of the heart and a story of God's zeal to reclaim that heart. This is, this is what the Bible is about. And what we tend to do is we tend to blame everything around us as to the reason why we are the way we are, right? This is what we do. Instead of blaming the heart, it's so taking responsibility with the heart that God has given us. And there's sin in our hearts. So I blame my mom, my paren, my nan. And I, I blame everyone and everything around me for the reason that I am the way I am. But coming closer, the Bible teaches us something completely different. You know what the Bible teaches us? The Bible says that our behavior is the result of the way that our hearts interact with situations and relationships in our lives. My wife is not causing me to be bitter. My heart is causing me to be bitter. I'm not causing my wife to be unforgiving. Her heart is. Now, I don't have issues with my wife. I'm just giving you an example. So I don't need counseling after, okay? But you can still pray for me, right? <laughs> the point is, we tend to blame everything around us, but not our hearts. And friends, God sees the heart. He sees the heart. We cannot blame our circumstances, our situations, and even our relationships, but rather blame our hearts. Friends, God sees every thought, every interpretation, every motive, every desire of our hearts. And coming closer, and write this down if you can, there is not one movement of our heart that is not fully known to God. He sees all of it. We are naked before God. So because of this, because of this, we need to stop playing church. And this Christian game, he sees everything. Everything. He sees even our worship. That our worship must be pure before God. God doesn't want you to come and experience worship. No, God wants you to come and be worshipers, friends. We can come to church and we experience in worship as the worship leaders are coming and leading us in worship and we are praising God and doing all of these things, but we go home and our hearts are still not broken before God. There's a major mistake with this and problem with this. God wants you to be broken before him. And when you're at home and you're loving your family, that's worship. 
When you're with your co-workers and you're loving them, that's worship. We don't live like the devil outside of the four walls of the church. And then we come here and we pretend to be something. No, God sees everything. He sees your heart. Kevin, why do I have to mess with my worship? I have to mess with my worship. Mess with something else. Not my worship. Jesus messed with our worship. You know what Jesus mentioned? In Matthew chapter 15, verse 7 through 9, he's talking to the Pharisees. You hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus messed with our worship. Jesus is concerned with your worship. How are you worshiping Jesus? Because he sees your heart. When the Bible talks about the heart, he talks about the seed of emotions, seed of desire, your thoughts, your full being. It's who you are. So your heart must be given to God. Friends, God does not want us to experience worship God wants us to be worshipers. When we come and we make much of God, that's what he wants us to do. He will settle for nothing less than our hearts. He wants our hearts. Remember the book of Ezekiel in chapter 14, the people are worshiping false idols. And in the midst of God rebuking the people, God says, I am coming after your heart, O Israel. He wants your heart. He wants all of you. Will you trust him? Will you give it to him? Will you allow this amazing God to lead you and guide you? And finally, Samuel's king. Samuel's king. So, what happens? Based on the story, Samuel's in the house of Jesse. First son comes. Samuel agreed, believed that that's the king. God says no. Then the second son, God says no. And then seven sons, and God said no. Samuel, being exhausted, says, do you have any other sons? And then he says, yes, my youngest is in the field. The youngest is in the field. His name is David. You know what's amazing about this? What's amazing about this is how amazing, how gracious loving and kind God is to his people. He really is. David is not even a part of the greatest event in his family history. Here's a prophet in his house about to crown a king. And they never thought to call David. Never. David David is out there in the flock working as all the sons are thinking to themselves, it might be me, it might be me, it might be me. And David is not even experiencing this. David is doing what he's called to do. And Samuel calls for him. This is why God called David. Because of his sovereignty and because of his covenant. But notice in the life of David, first we notice that David is the opposite of his first brother. The text doesn't say it here, but what the text is implying is that David is smaller than his brother, his older brother. Because what impressed Samuel was the height of the older son, the stature of the older son. And here is David, 
a young boy before Samuel. The next thing I want you to observe is David's job. What is David called to do? He's called to be a shepherd. A shepherd was considered to be a very lowly job in first century Palestine or even in that particular time in the Hebrew culture. But notice with me how important this is. What did Saul, what was Saul doing in 1 Samuel chapter 8? In chapter 8, we notice that God calls Saul. In chapter 9, Saul's father's donkeys straight away, and here is Saul going to find the donkey. Even that, we notice that Saul wasn't a good shepherd. Why? The donkeys made its way back home before Saul can actually find the donkeys. And here we notice that David is keeping over his flock. He is a good shepherd. And that's a very powerful thing because in history, we notice that great kings are good shepherds. Great prophets are good shepherds. They take care of animals and therefore it was a training ground for them to take care of God's people. Friends, in the same way for Christian pastors and elders, we need to take care of our families. If we love our wives and our children and we take care of our children, it's a great training ground to care for the church. So here we notice David's job. He was a shepherd. Notice also, mentioned, yes, he was handsome, but the indication here is that he was small. As in contrast to that of Saul. Saul, we are told, from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Also, what impressed me about David here, don't miss this as we close with this. David was filled with the Spirit of God, just like Saul was filled with the Spirit of God. Notice verse 13. Don't miss this. In verse 13, he says, Then Samuel took the horn of an oil and anointed him, in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Friends, coming closer and don't miss this. In the same way, we noticed Saul was filled with the Spirit of God, but the Spirit of God left Saul. David here is filled with the Spirit of God, but the text tells us the Spirit stayed with David. That's what happens with the inner man, the inner approach of life. The Spirit comes, the Spirit dwells, the Spirit impacts, the Spirit empowers so we can do the work of the ministry. And the Spirit never departed David. This is the beauty of being truly saved and pursuing the inner approach of life. But friends, we have a greater shepherd than David. His name is Jesus, a greater shepherd who cares deeply for you and for me, a greater shepherd who died on the cross for our sins. Maybe you are held by grief. Maybe fear is gripping you so tightly. And maybe you're saying, what's the hope? What's the point? Trust in God. As God revealed his purpose to Samuel, God desires to reveal his purpose to you. Will you turn to Jesus? Maybe there's some of you in this room that you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Will you turn to Jesus? Will you repent of your sins and place your faith in Christ and Christ alone?
God will give you rest. God will give you peace. Will you make the decision to trust in him? Will you follow him like Zacchaeus did, like Matthew did, like the Samaritan woman did, like I did, and like so many of you in this room have done? Will you follow Jesus? And for those of you who trust in Jesus and know in Christ, but yet you are held by grief and gripped by fear, yet you're making decisions based on appearances rather than trusting in God, will you turn to God? Join me as I pray for us. Father, thank you for your will, for your grace, for your mercy. Thank you for practical passages of Scripture like this. That God sees the heart. God wants the heart. I pray for our hearts. That we're given to God. That we belong to God. That God is our possession. So Father, I pray that we will stop playing church if we are. That we'll be honest and open before God. Because he sees all things. And that our God, he wants our heart. Father, here it is. Take it. Use it. Seal it. Break it. For your glory and your glory alone. Let us pray that prayer, God. Take our hearts. Because we desire you above all things. We love you. We worship you. And we exalt you. Amen.